Paul wrote over a 15, maybe to 20 year range. He wrote 1 Corinthians uh, very early in the 50s. He writes Galatians a little bit later. And it's amazing to see the continuity between what he says in one of his first letters and what he says in one of his middle letters, and it's exactly what he says in his last letter, 2 Timothy. Okay, thanks. Galatians chapter 6, as we continue our series, this is the penultimate message, which means next to the last. Uh, And it's a little sad for me that it is uh, one of the last messages because we could spend uh, the rest of the decade looking at Galatians. It is called a capital epistle. That means, and there are only three of them, It was an epistle that the early church used as a test or a measuring rod of authenticity. In other words, if someone claimed that this particular letter that they had found was written by someone and it was God-inspired, God-breathed, it was authoritative, they would use Galatians as a test. If anything that was said in that letter was inconsistent with what was said in the book of Galatians, it was fabrication and it was disregarded. It was a capital epistle. It is, in the opinion of many throughout the last 20 centuries, the greatest letter Paul ever writes. Now, those who might say, how about Romans? Well, you can debate that all you want, but Romans, Galatians, these are capital epistles. These are the epistles born of the Spirit of God to be used as a measuring rod, not only for the church, but our individual lives. It's also been called the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta of the church, the Christian faith. If you want to know the gospel, if you want to know it in its entirety, all you need to do is read and reread Paul's letter to the Galatians. So let's look near the end. Chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who, are force, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For 45 years, Queen Elizabeth ruled Great Britain. She is considered the finest queen that the nation had ever had. Her mother, Anne Boleyn, was murdered as a traitor two years after she was born. Twenty-three years later, she came to the throne herself at age 25. And though she was the most beloved queen from almost the very beginning, there were people that had it in for her. One day, a woman who hated her dressed like a man and hid in her closet. And she was doing fine with this plot. It made all kinds of sense. As soon as the queen would come to bed, she'd come out of the closet and kill her. It had one flaw, this plan. She forgot or didn't know that the guards of the queen always searched her room before she went into bed. And so when they got to the closet, 
They saw this woman who was dressed like a man. They unmasked her and they brought her before the queen. When the potential assailant saw that the jig was up and there's nothing she could do, she looked up at the queen and she begged for compassion. The queen looked down and said to her, If I show you grace, what promise do I have that you won't try this again? The woman instantly said, Your Majesty, grace that has conditions is no grace at all. And the queen said, You're right. I pardon you by my grace. The guards took her out from the throne room, let her go, and would you believe it? The next 45 years, Queen Elizabeth had no more devoted servant than that woman who got grace. Paul would understand that. Ladies and gentlemen, according to the Apostle Paul and according to the New Testament, according to Jesus Christ, there's only one thing that will change your heart, and that's not the law. If anybody could have had his heart changed by the law, it was Paul. He knew it word for word. Look what he says in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you by my own hand. Now, some people say, see, that's sign that he had an eye problem. Five times in his writings, he speaks about, in a veiled way, his problem with sight. And yet others say, no, he's not talking here about his eye problem. He's talking about his emphasis. The reason he's writing with large letters is because what he's writing is so important. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Many say that that's the greatest explanation of the cross in the entire Bible. In other words, if you understand verse 14, chapter 6, if you understand it, and inculcate what it is saying, you will have a strong grasp on the gospel. I remember years ago talking to a man who, who preached a lot. He loved to preach. He believed that people loved to hear him preach. And, and he uh, felt that he had something to say. And so we were talking about what he was going to preach the next series, and I suggested to him, maybe the cross. And he said, oh, the cross? I've preached the cross before. We've already done the cross. I mean, how many times should you preach the cross and believe that people won't be bored? You know what the Apostle Paul would say? An infinite number of times. Remember what Barrett read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know the problem with most Christians? We think the cross is only the beginning of our faith. We stay at the cross long enough to be saved by His grace, but we don't linger there. And Paul would say that's a huge mistake. Because there's only one place where true change can happen in your life, and that's at the cross. Paul would say, you don't go there once. You must go there every single day. 
and what he lays out in these five verses are the crux of the cross. He lays them out by his own hand. You know, it's Confirmation Sunday. It's a day that we celebrate a number of students that have gone from baptism to professing their own faith, confirming their baptismal identity. And not all hinges on their understanding and appropriation of the cross. Yours does too. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the centrality of the cross. Look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Do you know what he means? What Paul is saying is there's nothing in my life and there's nothing in a believer's life that's more important than understanding and embracing the cross. You say, that's just preacher speak. <laughs> I mean, preachers are given to hyperbole. This is the most important text we will ever consider. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, this is the most important. But notice carefully how he begins. He begins with four Greek words that are almost impossible to translate into English. But far be it from me. You know what the King James says? God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. The problem with that is God is not in the Greek text. Why would they put God's name in there? Because they know He's talking very strongly, so they put God's name in. God forbid! But God's not in there. The NIV wimps out. It says, may I never boast. That's wishy-washy, may I never boast. You know what the Greek says? I absolutely under no circumstance will ever, ever, ever boast in anything but the cross. I absolutely under no circumstance will ever, ever, ever boast in anything but the cross. It's the strongest, the most negative adverb there is in the Greek. And what Paul is saying is that there is absolutely nothing that I've ever known in my life that comes close to the importance of the cross. Now think of who he's, who's saying this. Paul's a Roman citizen. He's seen the, blend, the splendor of Rome. He's seen the splendor of Athens. He's been to Ephesus. He's come off the boat there in the Mediterranean and seen those marble pillars that rose into the sky 35 feet. He looked up and saw the temple of Diana. He knew the law. He knew the Torah. He was a student of the greatest teacher of antiquity, Gamaliel. He was a leading Pharisee. I mean, Paul had seen a lot in his life, and yet he says nothing comes close to the cross. Nothing. Nothing that I know comes close to the importance and significance to me of the cross. You know, you hear people say this. Have you ever heard this? You hear this in the church. It doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters how you live. You know what Paul would say? That's insanity. That is absolute insanity. 
What matters is most, what matters of most importance is what you believe. He doesn't say absolutely under no circumstance will I boast in anything but the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say God forbid that I should boast in anything but the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say God forbid that I might boast in anything except holy living. He says there's only one thing I will boast in and that's Jesus Christ on the cross. Somebody said there's only two religions in the world. One religion says, here's what you need to do to be accepted by God. The other said, it's already done. Every religion says, here's what you've got to do. But only Christianity says, it's already been done. Remember what the angel said to Joseph? You shall name his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He doesn't say you'll name him the example. You don't say name him a teacher, don't name him a rabbi. Name him Jesus, for the name means Savior. He'll save his people from their sins. Thirty-two years later, Jesus takes his disciples as far north as he ever takes them, Caesarea Philippi, and he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, that's normally as far as we read, but you know what Jesus says after that? I'm going to go to Jerusalem to die. And you know what Peter says? Far be it from you, Lord. You know what that means? I'm fine with you being my teacher. I'm fine with you being my example. But when you talk about dying on the cross as my Savior, that's when I have a problem because you being a Savior means I'm hopeless and helpless. Remember how John ends his gospel, last verse. I suppose if everything that Jesus did was written down, all the books in the world wouldn't contain them. Think about what that means. John's been with Jesus for three years. He's seen all of his miracles. He's heard all of his teaching. And yet when he writes his gospel, almost half of it deals with the last week of Jesus' life. You look at John's gospel. Twelve chapters deal with the first three years and the last chapters deal with the end of his life and 40 days after the resurrection. That's it. Why? Because John knows what Paul knows and every writer of the New Testament knows. And that is we don't need another moral teacher. We don't need an example. We need a new heart. And that only comes through the cross. Why do you suppose that the last thing Jesus wanted to do before the cross was gather his disciples together in the upper room? And what does he say to them? This is my body. This is my blood shed and broken for you. Do this every time you gather together. Do this in remembrance of me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. In other words, what he's saying is, the only successful way to build your life is at and on the cross. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to remember this very fact, not what I've taught you, not what I've shown you, but what I've done on the cross. Second, notice the comprehension of the cross. Look at verse 12. 
It is those who want to make a good showing of the flesh who force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross. You know what Paul's giving us here in verse 12? He's giving us a test. Do you understand the cross? Here's the test. Do you understand the cross? This is the test. Remember what the false teachers were saying? They were saying what many Christians say. Believe in Jesus, obey the law, and you will be saved. And for five and a half chapters, Paul has said that's absolute rubbish. It's not the gospel. The gospel says as soon as you believe, you're accepted by God forever. You're saved. As soon as you believe, you're accepted. As soon as you believe, you're unconditionally loved. And the result will be a desire to obey. So what the false teachers were saying is, it's God's work and your work that combine for your salvation. So what is it that causes the false teachers to reject the gospel? They say they love the law too much. Paul says that's not the reason. The real reason they disregard the gospel is because they hate the cross. The cross is repulsive to them. Chapter 11, John's Gospel. John the Baptist is in prison, remember? And he's having his doubts about whether Jesus is the Messiah. So he sends disciples to Jesus asking, Are you the one? Are you the one to come or should we go looking for another? And remember what Jesus said to them? You go back and you tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the poor have their good news preached to them. And then he says this, Blessed are those who are not offended with me. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Now, why would Jesus say that? It sounds like a non sequitur. Why would anyone be offended with Jesus healing the blind or the lame or the deaf or, or preaching good news to the poor? You know why they're offended? Because they know that that's who Jesus has come for. They're offended because they know Jesus' ministry is only to the blind and the deaf and the dumb and the poor. And unless you're one of them, He's not your Lord. Years ago, R.C. Sproul was teaching on the meaning of the cross. As soon as he got to the part where he talked about the wrath of God being poured out on his own son, a man stood up in the back row and said, that teaching is primitive and obscene. You know, I had a man years ago say almost exactly the same thing to me when I preached on the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. It's primitive and obscene. Bertrand Russell once said, no one who is truly human can believe that God would punish sin like that. See, the cross is offensive. It says that you are blind and lame and deaf and dumb and with no excuse. Somebody has said the greatest monument to the, to the depth of human wickedness and impotence is the cross of Jesus Christ. The law says the good and the wise and the moral qualify to come into the kingdom of God. The cross says there's nobody good, there's nobody wise, there's nobody moral but one, and that's Jesus. The cross says you can't satisfy a holy God. Religion says do what's right and you'll get in. The cross says none of it you can. 
Religion says, don't stop doing. The cross says, it's all been done. You see, that's the test. The test of your life with regard to the cross is this, your self-concept. The cross says, are you trusting yourself or are you trusting in him? I love what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said. He said, whenever I ask someone, are you a Christian? And they say, I'm trying. I know they don't have a clue. <laughs> whenever I ask somebody, are you a Christian? And they say, I'm trying. They don't have a clue. That's what Paul's saying. You can't be a Christian by trying. You can only be a Christian by dying. And that's offensive. That's offensive. That is offensive to everyone who's perishing. The cross doesn't tell you that you're good. The cross says you are desperately wicked and you need Jesus. And then third, notice the change. And this is what people have been waiting for for weeks. This is the verse that if we fully understand, we will understand how someone lives an obedient life. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know what it means to boast? It means literally to glory in. It's the thing in your life that brings you the greatest satisfaction and joy. It's the thing you go to bed thinking about, a pleasant thought. Look what Paul says it is for him. It's the cross. He says the thing that brings me most joy and satisfaction in my life is the cross. The same instrument that once laid him bare now builds him up. It's the power in his life. It's what's killed the world to him. In light of the cross, what Paul is saying is everything else is of less importance. You know what the cross has done for Paul? It's gutted all of his fears and worries. They now have no power over him. Think of what the cross says to the Christian. It tells you who God is and what He's like. Every other religion has a God that is capricious and is demanding. And there has to be some kind of sacrifice to appease that God. Throughout history, men and women have sacrificed their crops and their herds, even their children, to appease their God and assuage their guilt. But think of what Christianity says. Our God hung Himself up. Our God satisfied His own wrath by His own sacrifice. The testimony of the cross is God's done everything that we need. I have a friend who says only God can change a heart. But you know how God does it? There's only one way God changes your heart and that's by the cross. You can preach the law till you're blue in the face. You can lay down rule upon rule. You can tell people don't ever do this. Never, never, never. You can beat up your mind. You can beat your body. You can beat up your heart. But it will never change. 
If that weren't so, don't you think that over the whole history of Israel, someone would have been obedient? I mean, reread the Old Testament. If the law could change you, then God, why in God's name did He have to come to the cross? I have a friend who says, people will run from the law and grace, but they'll only run back to grace. You go ahead, you beat your kids. You post the commandments on their wall. You beat the law into them every day. And you'll never get to their hearts. But you ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to pour out grace upon grace. Their hearts will be changed. 300 years ago, William Cooper wrote a hymn that is as fresh today as it was then. Listen to the first stanza. To see the law by love fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and makes duty a choice. Listen to that again. To see the law by love fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and makes duty a choice. You see, Cooper passed the test. He knows that only the cross can change your heart. You can preach the law just like the false teachers of Galatia and you'll never get to the heart. But preach the cross and the unvarnished gospel and your heart will never stay the same. What you need is not the Ten Commandments. What you and I need is a greater understanding of the cross. It's Confirmation Sunday. Can't think of a better day to think about that. Amen.